1: Why do you set these ambushes?
2: We set them when we get information from the police that the terrorists are coming to a certain place. We can then go there, lie in wait for them and kill them. How often are they successful? Well, not very often. Naturally, there are a high proportion of failures. But it is the best way of killing terrorists and that makes the failures worthwhile.
0: General Sir Frank Kitson played a key role shaping the British Army's tactics beginning of the Troubles. When he was sent to command troops in Belfast, he was considered an expert in counter-insurgency warfare.
2: An insurgency campaign consists normally of violence mixed with other measures, to wit, psychological, political, and economic measures on the part of the enemy. Therefore, in order to put an insurgency campaign down, one must use a mixture of all these types of measures.
0: He had honed his skills suppressing insurgents in places like Cyprus and Kenya. But his tactics made him a hate figure for Nationalists.
3: Kitson is, if you like, the epitome of British imperial coercion. He probably did more to alienate the National population than any other figure in the British military. From his perspective, it's a counter-gang. From the perspective of the Nationalist community, it's a, it's a death squad.
0: On the other hand, he couldn't have had a more successful career. He won the Military Cross... Twice and rose to commander in chief of the army. The Times described him as a soldier of originality, independent mind, and intrepid nerve, perfectly suited to the role of lightning conductor to the forces.
1: He was uh, seen uh, first and foremost as a thinker on counter subversion, counter insurgency, uh, counter terrorist operations.
0: General Sir Frank Kitson died on the 2nd of January. He was 97. In this episode of The Tale, we look at his career and legacy. Edward Burke is an assistant professor of military history in UCD. He's author of Tribes, British Army Cohesion, Deviancy and Murder in Northern Ireland. Edward, Frank Kitson, born in 1926 from a military family, seemed to be destined for the forces, joining the army in 1946. He made his name fighting insurgents in Kenya, Malaya and Cyprus. Uh, He came to Northern Ireland in 1970, taking charge of the army in Belfast, a career soldier. Can I ask you for your assessment of Frank Kitson as a soldier?
1: Um, Well, obviously he is uh, very influential in the uh, counterinsurgency campaign in Kenya um, in the 1950s. So he is there, he's a military intelligence officer, um, and, uh, he was, uh, came up with a concept of running sort of counter gangs, um, in Kenya, particularly in the districts that he was responsible for. Um, and these were, uh, all about sort of turning former insurgents, Mamma insurgents, and then using them, uh, to try and hunt down their former, former comrades. Um, so, you know, controversial, um, uh, from a colonial perspective um, in terms of the sort of rather uh, brutal uh, standards of the time seen as as uh, successful um, and then he went on after after that to uh, serve elsewhere um, he was he served in South Arabia in the late, late, late 1950s he was involved into looking at the um, some of the uh, insurgent activity uh, in uh, Oman um, and then he, he also served in Cyprus including in a, a peacekeeping capacity and um, and then he spent time in uh, Oxford um, where he uh, did some research for his uh, much quoted book, uh, Low Intensity Operations, which was published while he was serving as commander of 39 Brigade in, in Belfast in 1971. So in terms of us he's, he's clearly one of the most um, intellectual officers of his generation, um, came from the originally commissioned into the Rifle Brigade. So, you know. Very much seen as a as an intellectual part of the army, um, high achieving part of the army. Lots of generals come from the Rifle Brigade or from the green, from the Green Jackets, um, so seen as you know h- highly influential in terms of the thinking about late counterinsurgency um, within the British Army, um, and uh, obviously high achieving in terms of that. He went on to be commander of uh, UK Land Forces, so um, he had a um, he had a stellar career from the army's perspective. But he was very much seen, although he did command an Armoured Division. Um he in later in his career, at the end of his career, he was he was uh, seen um first and foremost as a thinker on um counter-subversion, counter-insurgency, uh counter-terrorist operations.
0: He did use particularly brutal tactics in Kenya. How successful were they? I mean, I'm looking back perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that Kenya is no longer a part of the British Empire.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so Kitson was He's, he's, as with Kitson in, in, in Belfast to some extent, he is, there are contradictory uh, parts to his time um, as an officer during that campaign. Um, on the one hand, um, he allowed you know, significant latitude to for example the, the white officer Kenya regiment which was involved in quite a lot of atrocities.
2: When we get information from the police that the terrorists are coming to a certain place, we can then go there, lie in wait for them and kill them. How often are they successful? Well, not very often. Naturally, there are a high proportion of failures, but it is the best way of killing terrorists, and that makes the failures worthwhile.
1: Um, and so he had, a, he, had a sort of, he had an ability to sort of maybe look away um, at, at various points. Um, but he was also quite critical of what he felt was sometimes you know, rather chaotic, misdirected brutality. So um, he certainly wasn't, um, you know, he was. He was so when he came up with the concept of running counter gangs. Um, one of the things he wanted to do to capture Mau Maui insurgents was to offer them carrot as well as a stick. So incentives that they would be essentially groomed to turn as and to, to turn them into um, agents uh, that would work against their former comrades. Um, and this was very successful. So. He was he was certainly not averse to using hard tactics, but he was also um, you know, clear-eyed about um, the type of force, how he wanted to apply it. And so the counter gangs, um, we have to remember that there was some carrot there to incentivize. And, and indeed, if we look at, let's say, the running of intelligence agents by, by military intelligence, indeed by 39 Brigade in 1971, the so-called Freds, you know, again, there were incentives. There was this idea that you need to sometimes treat people well if you're going to win their trust. Um, some of the counter gangs in Kenya were even, you know, that uh, some of the turned insurgents were allowed to carry weapons, for example. That creates that 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 demands quite a lot of trust. Um, so he wasn't. We shouldn't underestimate his. This was not. A, he wasn't a blunt instrument of a man. He was um, focused, intelligent. And uh, although he did, you know, was, was able to look away from atrocities uh, committed, as I said, you know, for example, by the Kenya Regiment, he was, on, on the other hand, uh, when it came to running um, intelligence operations, again, extremely focused um, and able to use carrot as well as stick. So um, it seemed seen within the British Army at the time as being an exceptionally successful, capable junior officer. But he was a junior officer. At the time. You know, we should he is important in Kenya. Um, He had had significant influence as a military intelligence officer, but there were others. He, however, wrote a book about it.
0: So so is that part of the Kitson myth? Is that part of why we're talking about him? Is that part of why we know his name? Has he, by writing those books and approaching war as an intellectual thing, and perhaps read as much by anti-colonialists as military practitioners and historians, has he then created the demon as he created the hero the demon the intellectual the, the 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 theorist
1: lots of people in the british army even in the 1970s felt that, that because he wrote he 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 wrote this book before he had deployed to northern ireland to take command of the 39 brigade and the 39 Brigade files are largely closed, right? So we can't look at, we can't analyse Kitson's command in terms of what he did or didn't do in Belfast very closely. But of course, in the 1970s, when, you know, people were horrified at the violence of Bally Murphy, and of course, you know, Kitson, of course, was the um, brigade commander of Belfast, so bears command responsibility for some of the events around that. When, when people were looking for, you know, for evidence of intent or looking for, you know the thinking of men who were in command of Belfast at this, you know, very violent time. They reached for what was available, and what was available, of course, was low-intensity operations. And and so and so the book was widely read, particularly by, um, you know, the leaders of Sinn Féin uh, themselves, um, both official Sinn Féin and Provisional Sinn Féin, and widely criticised. And it was seen as, as then, sort of like you know, offering evidence that showed this kind of rather, um, you know, seamless transition from the colonial warfare of Kenya to. What was perceived, by of course, by Republicans as colonial warfare in Northern Ireland.
0: In actual fact, uh, Frank Kitson spent a very short space of time in Northern Ireland. But when he arrived, there was some shooting, there was trouble, there was disorder. But when he left, he left what's been described as a low level, but nevertheless, fully fledged uh, insurgency by that stage. Is that fair? Is, what responsibility does, does does he bear for that
1: i think i think Kitson has to bear some responsibility and clearly he had um, particularly around the time of operation demetrius so the, the internment operation in august in 1971 and the killings you know in in uh, ballymurphy he was able to look away and and he he certainly did not um, either take control of that as as you should have, or prevent it in terms of the atrocities, the the killings, the murders that took place there. So, and that was, I think, clearly that that inflamed, you know, uh, understandably, uh, nationalist. Uh, and indeed much opinion on the island of Ireland. so we need to, you know in terms of you know, not not getting to grips with that um and not getting to grips with the behavior of the the units who are most at fault there sort of you know elements of second you know, battalion parish regiment and first battalion parish regiment you know that's that's clearly on him I think you know we, we need to have a slightly more nuanced perspective on on kitson in terms of some of his earlier opinions I mean in, in, when he arrived, he in, wrote in, in September 1970. And in the months afterwards, he, he was sort of very quite adamant that the um, refusal by the government and by military commanders in Northern Ireland uh, to suppress Orange Marches played directly into the IRA, uh, the IRA's hands. Um, and this was allowing them to increasingly emphasize their, their role as sort of, you know, protectors, of the community against um, against Loyalists. So he, he he did have, you know, he did feel that the army should have gone after Loyalists much earlier. He also was very skeptical about internment itself. He felt that, you know, simply that the IRA leadership would disappear, um, assuming that they, they would know about it, it would leak, and it wouldn't be that effective. However, when, when it did when it was rolled out, um, of course, he was involved in, in helping to draw up the lists of people who were, who were going to be in, 30, in his brigade area. So, again, he had control of Belfast. So that's Belfast County, Antrim, large parts north down. Um, and, and that's what he was in command of. And he was um, you know, responsible for drawing up some of the lists, um, pushing his intelligence officers to do that. But I think where really most, you know, where I would find him to be extremely culpable is his inability or his refusal really to clamp down on military crime um, and atrocity under his command. So, you know, Bradley Murphy, he had an ability to look away. Um, and, and I think that was extremely damaging for discipline, morale and for the, the British Army as a whole in Northern Ireland. And, and, and of course, it brought incredible suffering to to the bereaved as we saw in the recent um, Ballymurphy inquest so he deserves he deserves um, blame for that so obviously when it comes to the military reaction force which was a a sort of covert um, intelligence unit that operated uh, largely in 39 brigades again under Kitson's command in late 1971 and early 1972 there was also uh, evidence there that uh, this unit increasingly began to Carry out uh, atrocities, um, and and obviously, Clinton again, you know, has has some responsibility for that. He wasn't actually present in Belfast when, when some of the most controversial killings uh, took place. So you know, so May nineteen seventy uh, two and June nineteen seventy two. But again, he certainly he certainly deserves blame. It, it's it's on him as the commander in terms of, um, the behaviour of of some of these units that that carried out some of the most notorious atrocities during the Troubles. So we can't we can't look away from that. I think it is very important though and here's here's where I have a problem with people who want to sort of almost exclusively sometimes focus on kits and uh, this kind of Eminon's grease or this kind of this this shadowy figure that seems to be behind everything he is a one-star general right so he's a brigadier he's in there are a number of brigades operating in Northern Ireland the most important military officers in Northern Ireland are the General Officer Commanding Northern Ireland, so particularly during this time, uh, Harry Tuzo and uh, two Commander Land Forces Northern Ireland, um, first uh, General uh, Anthony uh, Farrer Hock- Hockley, and then um, General Robert Ford, and b- both Farrer Hockley and Robert Ford, you know, are not were never as eloquent as Kitson and didn't write as you know didn't write as much as Kitson. Certainly, never had any bestsellers published. But Farah Hockley was a guy who uh, had a much more blunt, um, much more uh, violent, if you wish, approach than Kitson. Um, and when it comes to things like setting up the MRF, that would not have happened without you know Farah Hockley, and then it would not have happened without General Robert Ford's um, approval. And both these, both these individuals, both these officers, were much more aggressively minded in terms of the types of operations that they wanted to see in Northern Ireland than Kitson himself. And they're also more, more senior than Kitson. So really, you know, we shouldn't deflect blame away to a more junior level when senior officers and indeed the British cabinet are responsible for many of the key decisions, oversight, and I think, you know, handwashing that goes on in some of the more controversial incidents in Northern Ireland in late 1971, early 1972. In
0: my phrasing of this question, I mean no disrespect to Kenya, Aden, uh, Cyprus, or any of, the, any of the other places. But I wonder if you can tell from your research, did Frank Kitson and his fellow senior officers in the British Army... Did they consider Belfast, did they consider Northern Ireland to be an integral part of the United Kingdom, or did they consider themselves to be fighting in the colonies as they always had done?
1: I think when it comes to colonial warfare and Northern Ireland, we need to be careful about oversimplifying you know the type of violence that we see, let's say, in Kenya, and then we see in Northern Ireland you know the scale of violence in kenya and the the tools available to british counterinsurgents in kenya were were something that that you know that didn't occur and and in northern ireland right so in terms of you know, the idea that you can set up let's say concentration camps that you can remove whole villages you can simply just you can simply just eradicate a village and move people into camps, for example, the whole civilian population. I mean, that's just something that is on a different scale and it's a different approach. And I think British military officers knew in Northern Ireland they didn't have the latitude to do things like that. You know, the use of free fire zones, you know, such as in Malaya, the idea that anybody, let's say, of military, any male of military age could simply just be shot if they were found in a certain zone. You know, these type of, of tactics... You know, were never applied in Northern Ireland, and when they tried to introduce something like a curfew, which which had been used, of course, in Belfast in the early 1920s, but was laterally used in colonial conflicts. You know, this was this was completely disastrous, and so there is there is Northern Ireland is different. Clearly, within the UK, it's distinctive. The Special Powers Act is at play. There's an armed police force. There, are, There is a distinctive elements in Northern Ireland. They're just very different to Great Britain. But we shouldn't sort of simplify either and say it's the same as Kenya. Now, that doesn't mean that Kitson didn't turn a blind eye to atrocities. I mean, he wasn't, he cannot, like, operationally, he wasn't present clearly in Derry for Bloody Sunday in 1972. It was outside of his area of operations. He wasn't a senior enough Officer, but a few days later we had an incident in Belfast where two Legion of Mary workers, Raymond Muldoon and Francis Craig, were both abducted by one by soldiers from one power. They were actually rescued partly by soldiers from the Gloucester Regiment. So both operating under Kitson. Command, right. The Gloucesters were extremely angry that the one power had abducted these two civilians, you know, and, and beaten them and, and ultimately nearly got them killed. Right. They tried to hand them over to loyalist paramilitaries. You know, did Kitson come down hard on the soldiers who did that, i.e. from one one power? No, he didn't. And that's partly because, like, unfortunately, like other officers, including people like General Tuzo, who was a general officer commanding, and General Robert Ford, he had a very disbelieving attitude towards allegations of atrocity or allegations of crime by the soldiers. He wasn't interested. He wasn't looking. And that's he wrote about that later. He said that he believed, in, ultimately, he, he said that um, he was obsessed with the idea that that complaints about army brutality, army atrocity were simply propaganda. And so his, his deliberate ability to look away and to not investigate and to not push for more transparency in, in Northern Ireland during this period I think it was, you know, hugely damaging to the army. But we should be careful about simply lumping Kitson in with Robert, General Robert Ford or General Fire Hockley. He's a very different, more intelligent officer. And his, his legacy in terms of intelligence operations is important. And of course, it's controversial. You know, the military action force was also ultimately disastrous in terms of, you know, the killings that were carried out and the reputational damage to the army but we have to be careful to also acknowledge that kitchen was not even present in Northern Ireland when a number of those killings took place. So I suppose what I'm arguing for is a much more, I think we need a much more nuanced, much more evidence-based approach to talking about Frank Kitson. Because if we don't, we, we, we are at risk of ignoring the culpability higher up the chain for key decisions that, that led to the escalation of the conflict we need to be accurate in terms of um, if somebody isn't present in, in Northern Ireland or, 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 you know, simply um, wasn't in the meeting or wasn't, then, you know, again, history has to be done properly. So one of the reasons why Kitson has been ele- elevated so much is because the Ministry of Defence, I think, uh, counterproductively has held back so much material from this, from the, the history of the conflict in Belfast in 39 Brigade in the early 1970s. And I think from from the British from the British Army and from the British government, from their perspective, it's been completely counterproductive. I think uh, with more transparency. There are some 39 Brigade files are available. I've read them. And they give a very, very complicated picture of sometimes of, of tensions within uh, the senior ranks of the military. Uh, Kitson didn't always agree with Farrah Hockley. And, and actually, those complexities are far more interesting and, and I think uh, would offer us a much more judicious, careful history of uh, the troubles then frankly, some of the speculation that we have right now because of the absence of material.
0: Professor Edward Burke from UCD, thank you very much. Making this podcast, I tried to find voices to defend Frank Kitson's professional legacy. But military historians and politicians declined to do that. But he did have his admirers and his defenders. Military News Today wrote that Kitson was an exceptional soldier a caring commander and an inspirational leader. The newsletter headline has described the general as a convenient scapegoat. Historian Sir William Matchett wrote that a lot of misinformation has filled the airwaves on Sir Frank Kitson, particularly around Bloody Sunday. There were obituaries in the Times and in the Daily Telegraph. His Daily Telegraph obituary said he was one of the most capable and controversial soldiers of his generation. It remarked, on how his formidable personality and sardonic humour impressed all who came into contact with him. His Times obituary described him as a hate figure of the extreme left and a bogeyman, but said that many of those had never opened his book. But it has to be said that Frank Kitson is reviled by Republicans and held in very low esteem in the nationalist community. His name is synonymous with the so-called Dirty War even if some of his forgotten colleagues share more of the burden. To discuss General Kitson's legacy in the nationalist community and indeed in the former colonies in which he fought, I'm joined by Fergal McCloskey. He's a senior lecturer in history in St Mary's University College in West Belfast. Fergal, you're very welcome to the Belltel. Can I ask you, what's your academic assessment as an historian of Frank Kitson?
3: Frank? Kitson, he's famous really in Ireland for the fact that he produced a theoretical framework for what would emerge as the reality of British counterinsurgency during the Troubles. And obviously, he was also stationed in Belfast and was command of the army in the Belfast area during the very formative period of the Troubles. And his the implementation of his counterinsurgency techniques did an awful lot to exacerbate the situation, polarise it, and perhaps breathe life into a working-class nationalist Republican insurgency. He develops a strategy of counterinsurgency in Kenya against what the the British call the Mau Mau Rebellion, and many of these techniques will form the basis of his theories in in various books. Essentially, it's a re-articulation of an old imperial strategy of divide and conquer, where you get elements of the the insurgents to turn. use use intelligence and informers, but you also use what he called himself counter gangs and in Kenya in particular he was he, he was both able to turn insurgents and he was able to adopt the white settler uh, minority in order to carry out a very brutal campaign against largely the cuckoo tribe who, who dominated what, what the British called the Mau revolt now we know in, in retrospect that this involved the internment of one and a half million people a systematic what Caroline Elkins calls pipeline of torture uh, and this legacy of violence what what Elkins herself calls uh, legalised illegality. And again, Kitson is key to articulating this in an imperial and in an Irish context. It's the use and abuse of the legal system in order to facilitate the objectives of the counterinsurgency. And again, you get this reflected then in the early stages of his career in Ireland. Now, there's a pitfall here in terms of trying to personalise this and say that Kitson is some, you know, Machiavellian evil genius spider at the middle of a web. Kitson is, if you like, the epitome of a wider structural process of British imperial coercion, which in the context of Ireland then re-emerges in the early 1970s where he applies many of these techniques, the surrogacy or the, the countergang, the uh, manipulation of the legal process, the creation of countergangs and using elements of the local population, and in, in the case of the north of Ireland, the Loyalist community and Loyalist paramilitaries, And then the what would become famous as the five techniques and the process of interrogation and then perhaps more crucially, psychops.
0: You could argue, and many will argue, that he was simply a soldier simply following orders. Uh, he, he is clearly held in very low esteem by the nationalist stroke Republican community. Do you think he, that's almost symbolic do you think he's a talisman somehow or do you think that, that he, he does deserve that reputation?
3: It's like, mo- it's like most nationalist mythology. There's a large grain of truth to it. There's a, so he becomes a hate figure. Sean McStiffine says he was their chief antagonist or enemy in the early period of the Troubles and even on the Constitution. Nationalist nationalists say Pottie Devlin and the SDLP said he probably did more to alienate the nationalist population than any other figure in the British military. But I think what you have to try and do then is detach the historical reality from this the the popular portrayal or popular understanding of Kitson. And there is some correlation between the historical reality and how he is presented uh, within the nationalist community. And that's because of his subsequent prominence and because of the role he plays in theorising counterinsurgency policy. And this really resolves and this rotates or the pivot of this is the contradiction between the British state stated Narrative in, in Ireland that it's a you know a neutral arbiter separating two warring, uncivilized tribes, and the reality then of what British counterinsurgency meant in the context of the troubles, and that in essence is picking a picking the, the loyalist community, and ensuring up British wider strategic interest, because we have to remember that the troubles erupts in a period where Britain had already adopted many of these strategies, and Kitson was in Cyprus in very similar situ- situation. So you have this contradiction between how Britain is presenting its role in the Troubles and then what the reality of British agency and state agency in the Troubles is. And what we know now in retrospect is that that is that this British self-projection is inaccurate. It doesn't correlate properly or it doesn't correspond to the reality of British agency during the conflict. And what we know now about the levels of collusion and what we also know about the, the use of special legislation, even though he opposed or didn't think that internment was a good idea, the the, the use of the parachute Regiment during Operation Demetrius in, in August 1971, and again, the use of the parachute Regiment during Bloody Sunday in January the following year were key, were key in a process of polarisation and alienisation of the nationalist community and the working class nationalist community in particular. I think Kitson, Kitson is not only central to the the understanding and articulation of the strategy. But in that actual case, he was on the ground and he was in overall command. He's not held up in high regard because he's having secure British democracy or Western concepts of civilization. He's held in high regard because he has come up He's one of the chief theoretical innovators in trying to maintain imperial control in these areas where the majority of the population or large segments of the population do not want foreign intervention or control of their countries.
0: Virgo McCluskey, Senior History Lecturer at St Mary's University College. Thank you very much. Sir Frank Kitson died on the 2nd of January 2024. He is survived by his wife Elizabeth and their three daughters. This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The assistant producer was Olivia Peden. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from the BBC and British Pathé.